You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, We read in Revelation 1 that uh, this word is for us, that anyone who hears this and listens and does what you're um, speaking to us um, 
will prosper and be blessed. And so we ask that that might happen today. Uh, Give us a willingness to listen and a heart to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what makes a healthy church? What makes a good church, a a strong church? Uh, It's the kind of question we often ask at our newcomers' events. We have a bunch of people in the room, and we want them to share what they're looking for in a church. Some of them have been to churches in the past and know the good and the bad of that. Uh, Some have never been to church, but they also have some sense of what a church should be like. It's It's a question we often ask ourselves. As I mentioned before, we did a health survey last year because we wanted to think through uh, what makes a good church. We have this idea of what it should look like and we want to see how we're matching up against that. Well, today's passage is a kind of health survey for the first century church. This is their health checkup and Jesus is giving them the results, how they've gone. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is a passage known as the letters to the seven churches. Uh, Last week we saw that this book, Revelation, is written first of all to the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor, the modern day Turkey. Uh, You'll see up in the map, there's a bunch of these churches in these cities. These are some of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. And within these cities, there's these little groups of Christians. Uh, They're probably meeting in house churches, a multiple, a network of house churches around the city. So when you hear, say, the the term, the the church at the city of Sardis, it's probably more like a diocese or a presbytery, a group of churches that Jesus is addressing. You see, Jesus has been watching these churches. Uh, He died for these churches. They belong to him and he cares about them and he wants to let them know how they're doing. He cares about their health. Uh, 2 verse 23, he says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I'll give to each of you according to your works. He has this message for each of them to see how they're going and he's inviting us to listen in. Uh, Right through these letters, we see this phrase constantly recur. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's saying stuff to them first and foremost, but it's saying stuff to us as well and to every Christian church really since the first century. Jesus wants us to read their mail. He's got something to say to these seven churches, but he's also got something to say to us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're trying to see what we can glean from these uh, passages. And as I read through this, I see seven churches and I see three types of churches. I see churches that look healthy, but are actually sick. I see churches that are healthy, but are getting sick. And I see churches that look sick, but are actually healthy. Let's first of all think about those churches that look healthy but are actually sick. Uh, This really comes across when we look at the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. They think that they're doing great. They think that they're healthy but actually they're sick. Jesus says to the church in Sardis 3 verse 16, You have the reputation of being alive but you're dead. And then he says to the church at Laodicea, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realising that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Uh, Now we're not told exactly what they're doing wrong, but that just might be the problem. Let's take a look at the church at Sardis, for instance. There's no sign of a specific sin. And we're going to see in these other churches that there's a lot of temptation to compromise, to give up faith, uh, or there's also persecution as well. We don't get the real strong sense of either of those things 
There's a hint, perhaps, at some of their sin, but it's not obvious. And it's also obvious that there's no great big persecution or trial against them. And I think that that might just be the problem. There's actually nothing terribly obnoxious about this church or dramatic or interesting. One writer says it's a lively congregation, we might say, with a full program, a healthy budget, an impressive website, but there's nothing significant about it either. They're respectable. One writer says this church is the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity, which suggests that they're not really living out the gospel. You see, the gospel has a kind of power that changes us and then thrusts us into the world and rubs us up against other people, often causing offence. 2 Timothy 3 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. These guys don't cause any offence, and it suggests that they're really just nice. They've been tamed to standard middle-class church. Now, too nice to cause offence, but also too mediocre to make a difference. They're a sleepy church where everything just stays the same year in, year out. But sleepy churches, says Jesus, are dead churches. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, something similar is happening with the church in Laodicea, a church Jesus describes as lukewarm. Now, often when you hear that, you might have heard the phrase, uh, you can be a lukewarm Christian, that sometimes they're doing well and other times they're doing badly. Sometimes they're hot, sometimes they're cold. I don't actually think that that's true. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. If you're a Christian, you're passionate, you follow Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either all in, and if you're not all in, then you're all out. This is not about just being a switching on and off as a Christian. What actually Jesus is talking about here is that he's actually saying that they've lost their usefulness. You see, he's drawing on uh, the physical location of Laodicea. Uh, This was a city that was one of three cities on the banks of the river Lycus. Upstream was a city called Herapolis. And there was a, as the stream would go down, uh, it would start very warm up in Herapolis. And so it was famous for its hot springs. This was a place that you would go to if you were looking for healing. And then further downstream at Colossae, down the bottom of the hill, the water was fresh and cold and energising. Uh, but in the middle, it was just lukewarm. It wasn't good for anything. It wasn't good for healing and it wasn't energising. It was like, you know, when you uh, get into the car and you've got a water bottle there and it's been in the sun and it's just warm and tepid and gross. That's what Jesus is saying about this church. They're not hot, they're not cold, they're just in the middle. They're useless. And actually he finds them kind of disgusting. Verse 3, at verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's suggesting that they almost, they almost make him want to puke. Now, what's, what's happening here? I think what's probably happening is that these churches have been absorbed into their culture. See, God's people are called to be in this world, but not of it. These churches are in the world, and the world is in them as well. There's nothing different about them, nothing distinctive. They're just the same as everyone else. And that means that they've lost their usefulness. You see, God's people are called to engage with the culture around us. We're supposed to get in there and and bring transformation to that culture. But what's happening here is that the culture is just coming to the church 
Instead of transforming the culture, the culture is just, they're just conforming to that culture. The culture that's in the world around them is now in the church itself. And you can actually see this because of the way he describes these churches and what he says specifically to them. They've picked up the culture of their city. So the city of Laodicea was very wealthy and very self-sufficient, fiercely independent. Uh, In fact, in 61 AD, there was this big earthquake and it really wrecked the city. And so the Roman emperor said, look, we'll give you some funds to help you rebuild. But the people of Laodicea said, no, 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 we don't need you. We're self-sufficient. I can't imagine a state government saying that now. But... (laughs) But they were so confident in themselves, so independent, they were like, we'll fix this ourselves. That's the culture of this city. And it seems like that's become the culture of this church as well. So Jesus says to them, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realising that you're wretched, that you're pitiable, that you're poor, that you're blind, that you're naked. And then he goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He's saying, I'm like the emperor. I'm offering stuff to you. You've got to take it. Will they take it? Will they stand out from the culture of their city or have they just been absorbed into it? It's a similar story with Sardis. Again, this was a very prosperous city, a good central location, fertile area, uh, lots of trade routes around them. They were a confident city very secure. It was built uh, on three cliffs around it, and so it was basically impregnable. That's what they thought. Well, that was until Cyrus, the Persian king, actually managed to scale the cliffs with his army and took the city. I think the same kind of thing here is happening. The church itself believes that they're impregnable, that they're secure, that they're strong, but Jesus says you're actually asleep. And if you're not careful, I'll wake you up. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The, the city was surprised by Cyrus, and Jesus is saying, I might surprise you too. This is what happens sometimes with churches. We're supposed to transform the culture of our cities, but often we conform to them. And so that the culture around us becomes the culture of the church itself. It makes you think, what are the subtle vibes of our city? We're not just talking about ethics and morals. We'll talk about that in other churches. What are the things underneath that, the culture vibes around us, that we might pick up without even realising? How would you describe Melbourne? Well, there's lots of things. But one of the things I reckon about Melbourne is that we pride ourselves on being intelligent and sophisticated and classy. That's kind of how we see ourselves. We are the world's most livable city. We constantly win that award, except for those couple of years where Vancouver takes it. But we really believe that we're strong and capable, that we're a great city. Our number place used to say, Victoria, the place to be. And we can give you a million reasons why. You know, we've got great sporting grounds, we've got awesome little bars and laneway cafes, we've got consistent weather, now, all of those things. And so <laughs> we think that we're pretty great. But we won't tell you about this. You know, we're not showy. We're not like Sydney. <laughs> we're just kind of subtle about it. But we're kind of a big deal. That's basically how we see ourselves. I mean, we're smarter than Sydney. We're classier. Uh, we might, they might have a fancy bridge and nice speeches, but they're bogans. Uh, they might have, <laughs> might have a nice big Sydney opera house, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what happens inside it. 
They just have stuff outside. Now, sorry to all the Sydney people. Uh, we'll see you uh, later, perhaps. <laughs> now, of course, it's not wrong for us to be smart. It's not wrong to have nice architecture. Clearly, AFL is better than rugby league. But we can be smug about this. And the church can pick up this culture as well. We can have a smug uh, sense of our own sophistication. And I actually see this in two ways. Uh, Often in the way we think about theology. And if the city prizes intellect, then we often prize the intellect of our faith as well, our theology. But two things can happen. One way is that we take a very liberal approach to theology. Uh, We're worried that the culture is so sophisticated, so intelligent, and that Christianity doesn't fit with that. And so there'll be lots of people today, this morning, who'll be preaching in churches around Melbourne, and they'll be denying any of the supernatural stuff about Jesus. They'll tell you that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just a a peasant who had a big impact, and we can uh, admire his teaching. Or they'll try to undercut what the Bible says because it doesn't fit in our culture. That's one one approach. That's, That's falling for the culture of our city. Uh, trying to be sophisticated and classy. But the other approach happens over here as well. Even when we get the theology right, we can be smug about it. So I look at these liberal churches and I think, oh, I'm so glad that I'm right. But I'm also thinking, they're really wrong. I'm smarter than them. I'm better than them. The culture of the city is starting to take over me. I'm comparing myself to others and seeing myself as better. So a healthy church needs to constantly be aware of the culture around it. Not just the ethics that are there, but the vibe of the place and how it's changing us. So we see churches that look healthy but are actually sick. But we also see churches that are healthy and are getting sick. There's symptoms. It's the first cough. That's the sign of the flu that's about to come. And I reckon there's three churches here that fit into that category. Ephesus, Pergamon and Thyatira. Now, there are some, definitely some amazing things about the church at Pergamon. They're a determined bunch who hold fast to the truth despite opposition. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's, it's likely that Satan's throne is referring to this imperial cult, which we talked about last week. The emperors would set themselves up as gods, and there'd be temples dedicated to them. And, and Pergamum was really at the heart of this. They were the ones who had actually been the first ones to dedicate a temple to one of the emperors in uh, 29 BC. And so they're really passionate about this. This is the culture of the city. And to their credit, the church hasn't gone in with that. They've refused to do that. They're holding firm, even to the point of death. Verse 13, you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. See, the opposition they faced got so violent that this guy, Antipas, actually has to die for his faith. And he does it. And the church is strong on it. This church isn't playing around. Like they're, they're serious about their faith. And Jesus commends them for it. But there's signs that they're starting to waver. Verse 14 I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. A similar thing is happening in Thyatira. 
Again, it's a strong church, 2.19. I know your works, your love, your faith, service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. They're growing in their faith. They're going forward. But again, there's signs of sickness. They've tolerated false teaching. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So both of these churches have these false teachers coming in. Uh, They're called Balaam and Jezebel. They wouldn't have been real people in those churches. It's a reference to two figures in the Old Testament who basically came in and taught the Israelites, God's people, that they could compromise, that they could serve God and do a few other things on the side, that it didn't matter. They could get away with stuff. And we're told that they were a stumbling block to the Israelites And the same thing is happening here in these churches. There's some false teachers who have emerged who are saying, look, you can compromise. It's okay. You can be a Christian and do these other things. And it's interesting to see the specifics. They're encouraging them uh, to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and engage in sexual immorality. I I think that there's two of the ways in which we can compromise. It's it's the desire for self-preservation and the seductiveness of sin. So first of all, we have this desire for self-preservation. They're saying, look, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. A bit of context is helpful here. In all of these Roman cities, they had things called trade guilds. That's basically like a trade union. So if you wanted to work in the city, you had to be part of one of these trade guilds. Uh, The problem was that when you were part of these, when they would meet together, they would eat food sacrificed to idols. And this created a big quandary for Christians. They're totally devoted to God, and so they shouldn't uh, worship another God, right? But if they do that, then they won't be part of the trade guild. And if they're not part of the trade guild, they, they can't work in the city. And if they can't work, they can't feed their families. They can't look after them. What a horrible position to be in. Like, you want to support your family. You want to look after the people that you love. But to do that, you might have to compromise in your faith. And they're tempted towards self-preservation. And now that there's some teachers in these churches who say, look, it's okay. You, know, you can make your promise and, and kind of uh, cross your fingers behind your back. Jesus will understand why you're doing this. It's for a good reason. It's okay. But Jesus doesn't say that. Often God's people are faced in that kind of predicament. If you stand up for your faith, it might cost you. It might mean that you're scorned by your friends at work. I was just talking to someone between the services who says, I need to grow more of a backbone at work. It's hard to stand up for Jesus in his workplace. 350 workers, three Christians. It's hard to stand up for your faith in that environment. Perhaps there's a friend that you need a challenge. You might lose that friendship if you do that. It's going to cost you. Perhaps you lose your job even, or you might lose money because you're standing for your faith. It's very tempting for us to compromise our values to preserve ourselves. There's another temptation here too. It's not just that we're trying to preserve ourselves, it's that actually compromise is attractive. It's that everything around us is inviting us to make compromises, and that's what's happening here with the sexual immorality. There's stuff around these churches that's really tempting. Our Roman culture was sex crazed. 
Uh, every man was married, basically, but they were also, uh, it was accepted and almost expected that they would also see prostitutes on the side or uh, even use their own slaves for their own pleasure. Uh, Roman religion often included sexual rights as a means of worship. So basically, this was a culture where anything goes. And it would have been tempting for people within the church to go along with that. We know that there were Christians in Corinth, for instance, that were regularly sleeping with prostitutes. And so this was a real thing in their culture. They're tempted to compromise values because it's seductive. And we are too. You see, we might hear about this Roman culture and, and just be horrified by it, but our culture is not that different. Our culture all around us is sex-crazed. You can walk outside today and you can walk through High Point and you will see hundreds of images that are designed to appeal to sexuality, to titillate you. Sex sells. It's all around you. If you were watching the Super Bowl last Monday, a family game of just a sporting event was interrupted by a strip show in the middle. If you look on Netflix, basically every show made by Netflix is about sex. Every show is trying to subvert the norm, trying to encourage you to try something different, just to experiment, uh, that sex is the only way you will find fulfilment and joy and happiness. It's all around us, and we would be fools if we couldn't see how it could influence us. It might be subtle, it might be gradual, but it's happening. It's all around us, and so we are tempted to compromise to become just like everyone else. And I see this. I see this in my own heart. I see this in the world, in the, in the churches around us. I see it in our church. I know many Christian men who have immense trouble with pornography. I knew a bloke who used to write sermons, and when he'd finished his sermon, he would reward himself by looking at pornography. I know that there's people here who are damaging their witness and their own relationship with God by looking at pornography. It's destroying you, and I can see it. I know women who are endangering their faith by dating non-Christians, giving themselves over to someone who can't lead you and provide for you spiritually. And I don't blame the bloke in this, but I see the impact that it has allowing another culture into your life to shape you. And even when it's two Christians, I see that often our relationships don't look any different. A Christian's sleeping together before they're married, or sometimes our marriages just look the same as well. God says that our marriages are supposed to point the world to Jesus, his love and serving of the church, and then the church is careful and loving respect and trust, but often in our own marriages, men don't cherish and serve their wives, women don't respect their husbands. So often we see divorces and so on. We're compromised. As God's people, we've made decisions that have compromised our values, that have fallen short of what we're supposed to be. We aren't different. We don't stand out. We're ignoring God's wisdom and disobeying him. And yet you can find a bunch of teachers, false teachers, who will say it's fine. 
Uh, Stephen Cottrell is the newly appointed Archbishop of York. Basically, that's the second highest position in the worldwide Anglican Church. Uh, He believes that the Bible is out of touch when it talks about sexuality. He says this, What we know now about human development and human sexuality requires us to look again at those texts to see what they're actually saying to our situation. For what we know now is not what was known then. It's so condescending. Now, how does someone like that gain such a position of influence and prominence? Well, it's actually because people want someone like that. That's how false teaching works. 2 Timothy 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see that? The responsibility lies not just at the door of the false teacher, but at the people who listen. See, what happens is we want to do a certain thing, and so we find the teacher, the person who will affirm it. We look for that. We have itching ears. We want to fall in with the rest of the culture, and so we find the person who will let us do that. That's what's happening in these churches, in Pergamum and Thyatira. Will it happen here? Will we allow that to happen If I start to compromise, will you allow that? Don't. None of us can allow this. We have to stay fast to the truth. But even if you do that, that's not enough, as we see with the church at Ephesus. This was an amazing church. They had a great history. Paul had done some wonderful stuff over about two years. He trained up Timothy to take on the leadership of the church. The Apostle John was part of the church. That's a pretty good guy to have in the pews next to you. And Jesus has much to commend them on here. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Like these guys, these are really, this is a good church. Uh, They're patient, they're consistent, they detest evil, they're spiritually sensitive, they're insightful, they protect doctrine, they're resolute when they're attacked, and Jesus honours them. And yet, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I think what's happening here is that they've, they've lost their joy. They have all of this truth, but they've lost the wonder of it. They've been taught the truth by Paul, Timothy, John. They've got all of the meat, but somewhere along the way, they've lost the taste of it. It's become bland to them. They keep on doing stuff because they're disciplined, but they're kind of going through the motions. They do because they do, not because they love. It's really easy to fall into that. Perhaps even more so for us, because we value teaching so much. But let me ask you this. You might read the Bible every day, right? You might be great at that and consistent. But when's the last time you were reading and you just had to stop and just thought, I love you, God. I'm reading this and I'm realizing how good you are. When's the last time that happened? And maybe you pray every day. When's the last time, though, that you were praying and and you confessed a sin, you felt convicted by God and you brought that to him? You felt his forgiveness and then you saw him working through your prayers to overcome that sin. When's the last time that happened? We can be a 
uh, we can talk about the truth all the time, but how much is the truth changing our hearts and enlivening us? We might be healthy, but are we starting to get sick? We've always got to watch out for that. We've always got to keep going back to the doctor to make sure that that's not happening. So we see these two types of churches and then a third type. There are churches that look sick but are actually healthy. Uh, as you read through these letters, you'll notice that there's, Jesus has some critique for every church except two, the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Uh, now, it might be, at first, a little bit surprising that he's so uh, warm towards them because these churches look weak, they look poor, they look sickly. But Jesus says they're doing really well. He says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, this church is not funding lots of stuff. They're not, they don't have a massive staff team. They can't afford that, but they're strong in their faith. And then he says to the church at Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. These churches look weak, but Jesus says they're strong. Uh, Smyrna was a beautiful city, uh, reputed to be the birthplace of the poet uh, Homer, 250,000 people maybe, the glory of Asia, uh, and they were completely devoted to the imperial cult. They'd won the rights, just like winning the Olympics, uh, to, to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius, and so they would have been totally against the Christians. And it's not just the Romans. We're told that the Jews in the city are slandering them, trying to destroy them. The similar challenges in Philadelphia. The Jews are against the Christians. Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. They've shut them out, but they're standing firm. They refuse to compromise. The other churches are in some kind of way, but these guys are holding firm. And that's what Jesus is looking for. That's ultimately the sign of a healthy church. If you're willing to stand firm, no matter what. There's some really exceptional, wonderful churches around the world. Healthy churches. Places that God is really working in. I've been to conferences and I've seen some of these churches in America, Britain, all of these places. The churches that preach the gospel to thousands of people every week. Leaders who model the character of Jesus. Places where the Spirit is at work, changing people's lives. Uh, people coming to faith, hundreds of baptisms, all of these things. And yet the best churches, the, the healthiest churches, are probably churches you've never heard of. The underground churches in China, resisting the oppression of a government that is trying to destroy them. The house churches in Iran, where more people have come to faith in the last 20 years than the 1,300 years before that. I remember going to a conference in Florida a few years ago, and there's all of these really impressive leaders, you know, hipsters with beards and moleskins and um, cracking jokes about Baptists, Baptists and stuff like that. But there was one guy there who was probably missed, could easily have been overlooked wasn't asked to do a talk, I don't think he led a seminar, a bloke from India whose eldership team had been killed by Hindu extremists. Now that is a healthy church, a church where people are willing to die for their faith, a people who know the truth so well that they're willing to stake everything 
on it. That's what Jesus is looking for. Now, now how is it? So why, why is it so extreme? Is it just there's something special about dying? You know, do we just have this martyr complex? No, 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 it's not that. You can still be a legitimate Christian and may, you may never be faced with the opportunity or the danger or the threat of martyrdom, right? That you can still be a legitimate Christian. What I'm saying is, though, that when it comes to that, when someone is forced to face that question, faced with the ultimate test, that reveals the truth of their faith, the strength of their faith. See, if you're willing to die for something, then you must have really lived for it. You won't die for something that's unimportant. It's not worth it. It's be a waste. If you're willing to die for Christ, then he must be really something. He must be precious. He must be good. He must be the treasure. You give everything up to claim. And you must be really invested in it. You must have found the truth in Jesus and held onto it and believed it to the point where you were willing to die for it. You could give up everything except Jesus. You could give up your uh, property, your friendships, even your life, because Jesus was better than all of that. Everyone else thought you were a fool dying for a saviour who died, but you thought it would be madness to do anything else. The people of Smyrna and Philadelphia had lived with Jesus... And so they were willing to die for him. That's what made them a healthy church. How do we think about ourselves? Do we have a faith like that? Are we a healthy church? Now, we may never face the ultimate test. Pray, God, that we will never have to face that and die for him. But that doesn't mean that we can't live for him every day. We can't live with him and for him in the way that we work, in the way that we approach relationships and money, the way we care for people, the choices we make. We can live for Jesus in a way that shows that he is worth everything. How do we do that? We look at these churches and we think, oh, mate, I'd love to be like that. How do I get like this? I want to, as we finish up, suggest three things. The first thing is we need to see who Jesus is. You notice that Every letter is introduced with something telling us about who Jesus is. Uh, So in chapter 2, verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 2, verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 3, verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And we could go on. Every letter has something to tell us about who Jesus is and it's there for the churches so that they can focus on him and recognise who he is. I mean, they're in the middle of this massive empire. The Christian church is tiny and it's being harassed on every side and it would be easy for them to feel like, how do we find the air? How do we get the breathing of Jesus into our life? So we're told, they're told to look at who Jesus is. He's the first and the last. He's He spans the full expanse of all of history. He was there at the start. He'll be there at the end. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's the amen. When he speaks, stuff happens. He's sovereign. 
He's powerful. And so they can know that while they might be small, Jesus is big and he is in control. And then they can trust him. Here's the second thing. They need to trust what Jesus has done. So we can face all of the challenges of life and the threat even of death by trusting in what Jesus has already done because he has faced that. Chapter 3, verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, Jesus is calling his people to conquer, to face all things, because he has faced them already. Jesus has conquered, but he had to die to do it. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who, who made the world, whose hands flung the stars into the space, came to this world to save this world by dying for it. When he came, he didn't look like a saviour, Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. He looked weak. He looked sick. He was oppressed. He was accused. He was defeated on the cross. But we know that actually on the cross, he triumphed. Colossians 2 says that he disarmed the rules and authorities on the cross. See, at the cross, Jesus was defeating death. And the thing that stands behind death, sin itself. Death and suffering is only in the world because of human sin, human rebellion. We're guilty of that too. Jesus came to deal with that to deal with our sin. To do that, he had to die. So we're told in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, Jesus died for our sin. And because he completed the job, he rose from the dead. He defeated death. He is the conqueror. And because of what he's accomplished, there is something on the other side of death. So now he says, trust me. Trust me with your sin. Confess it to me. Find forgiveness. And trust me that if you follow me, I'll always be with you, even through death, even to the other side of death, because Jesus is there. And that becomes the third thing. We need to look for what Jesus will give us. See, Jesus says that for anyone who's willing to persevere, they will be a conqueror and there will be great promises for them. You see that right through these chapters. 2 verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You'll enjoy eternal life with God. If you choose to trust him now, you'll live with him forever. To the church at Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The the Christians of Sardis were being harassed and uh, hammered everywhere. But Jesus says, look, I'm going to honour you. I'm going to confess you before my father. I'm going to stand with you. So stand with me now. These are the promises that God offers us. And really it all hinges on this. Jesus has got to be worth it. Jesus has got to be worth the sacrifice, worth the scorn, worth the persecution. And here he's saying, I am. 
I am worth it all. I've conquered death, and so I'll bring you through too. And I have gifts for you. If you stay true, if you hold fast, there will be joy, there will be a crown, there will be rewards, there will be peace, there will be happiness. And it's these promises that have sustained God's people throughout the ages. When we read this passage, we're told that the church of Smyrna is about to face a great trial. Their suffering has begun. It's actually going to get worse. Verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. It's thought that that ten days probably means it's a, a significant period of time. It's symbolic of a significant period of time where they're going to really suffer. But it's also a definite period of time. It's got an end to it. That's what Jesus is saying. You're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. It might be quite long, but it'll be finite. That's what's ahead for them. And then he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. If you can do this, if you stay true, it'll be worth it. It's likely that one of the people uh, hearing this letter to the church at Smyrna was a guy called Polycarp, a remarkable man. He was discipled by the Apostle John, uh, the bloke who wrote the Gospel of John. and He became a great leader in the early church. He became the bishop of Smyrna in 115 AD. Uh, a couple of decades later, the persecution that we were talking about here came across to the church at Smyrna and he was arrested because he refused to burn incense to the emperor. He was do- totally devoted to Christ and no one else. They told him to renounce Jesus on pain of death and he replied, Eighty and six years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme Jesus, my King and Saviour? He stayed firm. As he died, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. He had lived for and with Christ, and so he was willing to die for him. That's a healthy Christian. That's a healthy church. That's what we want to be like. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this passage. It's sobering, it's hard to hear, but important for us to hear. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of this church. And uh, just as you did in the first century, you want us to know how we're doing. So give us open hearts so that we are willing to uh, get the health checkup. Affirm what is good in each individual here. Challenge what is bad in each of us and in our community, and help us to move forward in faith, growing more and more to know you and to love you and to be like you. We ask this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.